Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. Well, a thrilling weekend of European action. The teams are now whittled down. Two Irish, one French, one English. With me to discuss all this and more is the Harlequins and Australian lock, James Horwell. Hello, James. Brian, how are you? Are you getting some sleep at the moment? How's fatherhood? Yeah, it's good. It's been, uh, it's been, it's been awesome, actually. It's been nice uh, to have the little one here. She's nearly four months, so it's, uh, it's gone very quickly. Are you a modern man who, like Jacob Rees-Mogg, never changed nappies? Or do you, do you no, no, no. I, I do my little bit. I must admit, my wife's done most of the heavy lifting. But, uh, yeah, I have done my, my little bits here and there. But, yeah, the wife is, uh, has definitely taken control. Glad to hear of it. Anyway, the Champions Cup, and we now know what's happened. Narrow win for Munster, a thumping win for Saracens. Leinster, a narrow win, and a great game between the two French clubs. Racing just losing by a point to Toulouse. Perhaps it showed what French rugby, well, it used to be like this. Perhaps it could be again. Tell you what, why don't we start with the biggest win, Saracens? Very impressive. Owen Farrell, he's taking fatherhood seriously. Wife went into labour. Mark McCall said he phoned me about 2.30, said, in the next half hour. And I said, look, the game starts at 3.15, so we're in a cut-off point. Where do you stand on this? Do you, if it was a, tell you what, if it was a final and, you, and it was Farrell, would you expect him to play? Would you, or no, what? I, I don't know. I, I think that the, the birth of your child is more important than any rugby game. And I think that's, you know, there's some things that are bigger in life. It is a game and, you know, that's something you don't want to miss particularly the first one, I assume that, you know, he had the same mindset and he would have wanted to be out there. And But in the end, that the rugby's just a game and, you know, you hopefully your child's going to be there forever. So you want to you want to be there and to be able to cherish that. Well, part of the strength of Saracens has always been the depth of the squad. And when you've got players like Alex Gilden just step up into a fly-half <laughs> position and play really, really well, and then Lozowski misses one out of 12 kicks, yeah. you know, you've got that. And the fact that people like Jamie George has come back with a form from the internationals. George said um, the best is yet to come. They're the only unbeaten team left in the competition. How impressive do you think? I mean, the scoreline was fairly emphatic, yeah. but I, I thought it, it could have been more, actually. Yeah, look, I think that's the, the be- I think the strength of Saracens is their squad. They speak about it, you know, the ability to rest internationals or, or, or give it, bring internationals off the bench allows them to to rotate their squad do and they probably do that better than anyone definitely in the premiership and now you see when they go into Europe their their ability to to squeeze I think you can see Dave Rennie said that you know they squeeze and choke them out of to submission and you know having played Saracens the week before we had a lead on them and we you know we were going to a good space at half time and we allowed them to play their game onto us yeah you know squeeze us their big power game and we unfortunately just went 
you know, went into our shells and couldn't deal with it. And that's what they do to teams. And that the, the ability to have so many good players is certainly a strength of theirs. I mean, to beat them, you'll have to play as well as you can. Mm. But if you do that, how then do you beat them? What, what do you look to do? You know, it's always a big game. I think you need to, the physical battle's obviously huge for them. You can see they're a big forward pack, got some big runners. And when they're under pressure, they revert to type. And if you allow them to get the momentum to play on top, you know, when guys like Billy Vrnopola, you know, Jamie George, Will Skelton, these guys are playing on top of you, it's very hard to, to deal with. I think you've got to make sure you don't play a lot of rugby in your own half because they, with Farrell, with Lozowski, when they're kicking like that, it's very easy for them to build a score. And when they're playing in front, they're very hard to catch. Yep. So I think that's important. And yeah, I think you've got to have some, you know, some tactical nows, look and try and find some weaknesses in their, in their, in their defensive structures and try and do a little bit what they do. You don't mm. let them out of their own zone. You know, bring your flair to it, offload out of the tackle, quick ruck ball, don't, don't allow their defensive line to get set. Well, one of the big factors in their success, and I think he's underrated. I don't think he's just a banging centre, Brad Barrett, but he does marshal the defence very well now. He had a nasty injury. How much do you think they'll miss him? Look, he's, a, he's, the, he's that sort of glue sort of player, a bit like Chris Robshaw is for us. You know, he's the guy that you look to when the chips are down, but he's, he's got that, he seems to have that calm head on his shoulders he, and he's that glue that brings the team together. When, the, when there are things aren't going their way, you know, he seems to be able to bring them in and, and sort of just marshal them so that they can get back onto the way they want to play. And I think that is underrated. You probably don't see a lot of that externally, but I think internally um, in training and these sort of things is, you know, in the, as the weeks go on and, and through the preparation, I think that's where speaking to guys that play at Saracens and, you know, looking at the way the team's structured, that's where he's probably comes to his fore. I must admit, do you really understand the process for the venues for the semi-final? Because it's, it's, I mean, it's, uh, different competitions, yeah. different organisations do organise things differently, but I can't quite understand. How can it be that Leinster can play in Dublin? That's not a neutral thing. No, I, I can't understand. I don't know uh, how that works. Uh, I was hoping you might be able to explain to me, but it's an interesting one because obviously they want more, as many people at the game as possible, as many bums on seats. And, you know, I'm sure it's just strange that it's gone to a, a rival premiership club's home ground rather than, you know, maybe even the London Stadium where we played them previously. Yeah. Uh, Wembley might be a tough one to get into, but there's a lot of big grounds around around the UK that might be a little bit, you know, better suited to, to this game. But, yeah, it's, you know, I mean, Leinster play half their games at, yes. at the Aviva, so it's not really a neutral venue. Like Spurs. Playing at, playing at Wembley, wouldn't it? But now they've yeah. got uh, the most expensive stadium in the world, they won't have to do that. Time now to discuss the uh, Champions Cup from an Irish perspective. Very pleased to say we can speak to Malcolm O'Kelly, former Leinster Lock, who's on the line. Hello, Malcolm. Hi, Brian. How's it going? OK, look, two Irish sides through fairly tight matches. Why don't we take the Leinster Ulster one first? Jacob Stockdale went to social media to apologise to Ulster fans. Do you think... That was necessary? Do I think it was necessary? To, well, I don't think he meant to drop the ball over the line, but oh. he certainly did drop the ball over the line. But he's apologised to his teammates. Yes. But, yeah. Sure, they're pretty, they're pretty peed off. But, you know, he, in fairness, he created a chance himself and it was almost out of nothing. And then he was just sloppy in his finish. When he only used dive and he tried to put it down with one, one hand. And mm. that's why 
I suppose coaches tell kids to <laughs> always dive and what have you, you know. So uh, there's a lesson for for everyone going forward, maybe. Yeah, uh, Dan McFall. I mean, what is it? Probably out of the millimeters off his fingers, lost control. Very small thing, but so many other small things in this particular game could have sent it the other way. It was very tight. Yeah, yeah, it really was tight. Ulster certainly certainly showed up in terms of the physical nature of the battle. They were they uh, really stopped Leinster at the gain line, um, and I suppose uh, Leinster weren't weren't exactly helped by the Johnny not playing and Rob Henshaw not being there either. The two of their senior men just that would help control the match for Leinster weren't there. But you know, I suppose Leinster were in a fight. Uh, they offered Ulster some easy points early on, and Ulster were pretty mean about you know, in terms of giving up points. But uh, Leinster just did enough, I think. Probably deserved the victory, but it was really, really hard fought. Uh, Rory Best, I mean, he hobbled off. That might that might be his last game for Ulster, possibly. And I, I, mm. I sort of get the feeling with Rory. I mean, he's been a, a, a brilliant player. At the moment, yeah. he looks to me as though he's struggling. Yeah, I think he's probably not the only Irish international that's struggling at the moment for whatever reason. It just seems to be a certain malaise there. And uh, look, Rory, you'd have, you'd have the obvious excuses for Rory, like the man's put so much into into Ireland and Ulster over the years. And uh, he's had a really, really uh, long, tough career. And, you know, just that spark isn't there among so many of the Irish internationals for whatever reason. You know, and certainly uh, I think Rory has taken the brunt of a lot of it. You know, I, I, like he, like I, like any player, you're an injury from being from being being replaced. And if there had been if there had been a, a couple of internationals now leading next, you'd imagine like someone else could easily have cemented in, uh, their place into the Irish team. Now I'm sure we'll see him back in a in a month or so, and. Uh, Maybe fresher to lead the team, but he he like I think he deserves a certain amount of loyalty. But yeah, like I think the I think the Irish coaches have a would be scratching their heads a little bit. What what kind of caused this dropping dropping team performance? Malcolm James Hall here, mate. I think Hi, you Jeff. touched on it uh, a little bit there. The uh, the Irish form in the in the Six Nations probably wasn't up to standard. Do you feel that that's carried across into the club game? Because there's obviously been a couple of you know, close losses uh, on the weekend, but also, you know, in the Pro 14, a few of the, the Irish teams have struggled a little bit. Yeah, yeah, well, I think we're, we're again, we come from a situation maybe where we've, we've been used to seeing the Irish teams being kind of dominant and it's never going to last forever. But I think Edinburgh have been arguably the, the team of the Pro 14 this year and have had probably the best form to give Leinster uh, hockey in the week before. And Munster had to go there and try and find a victory. And it's never easy going away and win it. And although they didn't particularly play, Munster didn't particularly play that well, they just stayed in the match. Mm-hmm. They had a couple of couple of injuries to, to Carberry and Jack O'Donoghue came off in the back row. And, you know, they dealt with all that. They defended heroically. And Edinburgh a bit sloppy. And then Munster, two chances. They took them both. And they, and that was it. That's all Munster needed. Mm. When it comes to cup rugby, it's all about getting over the line. I, I cannot see Munster doing doing Saracens um, 
Munster uh, Saracens seemed like incredibly strong this year. Um, and they had a dip of form last year. Saracens weren't the team they are now, uh, or they were previously. Last year they were, I don't know what, what really happened to them, but certainly they're resurgent. Uh, and I would expect to see the provinces resurge a little bit too. Malcolm, you've already touched on the question I was going to ask is Munster's prospects against Saracens. Given that it's not at Allianz Park, it's at the Rico, how many uh, Munster fans do you reckon will make the journey? <laughs> That's like a, how long's a piece of string, really, you know? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. So how many How many will... Uh, it's, Easter, it's Easter Sunday or Easter Saturday, isn't it? I'm not sure that the whole family might go over. It might be a family visit. But yeah, you can expect them to uh, take their take their allocation and more. They will try and infiltrate. They're putting on fez hats and all sorts of things to try and get tickets. Um, <laughs> from, from experience, I know they'll do anything to get hold of a ticket. They're usually quite successful as well. Uh, let's go to the Leinster Toulouse. I mean, Toulouse are playing decent rugby at the moment. It was a, a narrow but a, a good win away at Racing. At one point, I would have thought this was going to be a fairly straightforward task for Leinster. Not so sure, but... Yeah. They're in Dublin. I don't quite know how that that came. Do you think? Yeah, uh, yeah. I was a very obviously <laughs> was expecting Racing to do a job on Toulouse, and it's been pretty straightforward. And that Leinster would go to Paris, and and I really wouldn't have thought that Leinster in there where they are right now would have would have done damage to Racing. But now suddenly everything has turned on its head, yep. and Leinster are looking at you know they've played Toulouse twice this year already. So they know what they're up against. Now, mind you, Toulouse do as well. And arguably, uh, Leinster are probably not quite in the form that they were earlier in the year. But, you know, I think Leinster will be will be happy for the couple of weeks together now because they've literally, on, literally only pieced, pieced together for that quarterfinal. What's your gut feeling about, about how it will turn out? I would expect Leinster to win that match. Okay. I would expect Leinster to win that match. I think they obviously at home and uh, the style of rugby that they that they play will probably be too much for Toulouse to, to deal with, I think. I expect that. Malcolm, thank you very much. Uh, always a great contribution. Thanks. Cheers, mate. Thanks, guys. Well, it was another case of uh, what could have happened close but no cigar for the Scottish teams in the Champions Cup. Pleased to say we can speak to a regular contributor, sometimes co-host of this podcast, Rory Lawson former Edinburgh and Scotland scrum half. Hello, Rory. How are you doing? Okay, John Barclay, um, after the, he said he felt it was more like we lost it rather than they won it. How much veracity does that have? Look, I think they were in the fight right to the very end. And I think, I think he does have a point. Uh, Edinburgh were arguably the better side, but they were the side that just weren't as clinical. They, they made a couple of mistakes, which at the... The top end of Europe, you can be punished for. A couple of bounces of the ball went against them. You know, the, pe- the, the decision to overturn the penalty went against them. Not the sharpest by Pierre Schumann, but at the same time, disappointing uh, behaviour by Tagburn at the same at the same time. But look, it was a it was a cracking quarterfinal game, but one that I'm sure Richard Cockrell and his players will will feel they could have and should have won. Do you think that's a, a game that, you know, maybe for Edinburgh to push on and get to where they want to be, they might have had to lose to learn from what their, you know, their mistakes? I guess Richard Cottrell came out and said, you know, all these tiny, tiny little bits, you have to learn and you only learn by doing. 
Yeah, I think so. But it would it would have killed Richard Cockrell to say yeah. uh, you got you got to lose to learn. Yeah. You know, he, he loves winning, and he believed his side were good enough to win on Saturday. And you know, in in many ways, you'd argue they were. They they did everything but win that game. There was an intensity to it. They put themselves in a position to win the game. So in many ways, yes, I think in, when you when you look at it, you take a step back and you understand uh, Munster the experience they have in, in Europe. And that's not every single player in the squad, but that, there's some key men in there. Obviously, Keith Earl is picking up two tries, just such sharp thought process for him, picking up the first one off a, off a quick tap and good execution on the second one and a, a great finish for him. But, but you know, you, you put guys like Peter Mahoney in that and Billy Holland and guys that have been around the block. They've been in, in quarterfinals. I think that was the 17th consecutive or 17th quarterfinal of of Europe and you know it's it's through those experiences that you pick up those wins at the same time the counter argument to that is is the Toulouse game whereby you've got yes you've got a, a number of experienced guys in there but you've also got a load of youngsters who are at knockout stages of Europe and just almost don't, have no fear and they go out there and play so I think Richard Cockerell will, will be disappointed uh, that his side didn't pick up a win but you know, encouraged in many ways that they were in that fight. Cock has also said, he, he said, what happens over the next three weeks will have an impact on the next 12 months. I don't necessarily understand that. Can you give us some insight into what it perhaps means? Well, Edinburgh's one focus now goes into the Guinness Pro 14 yep. and they've got a real battle on their hands to, to get into the playoff positions. I think if they get into the playoff positions, then they'd they'd back themselves against anyone. But... They've got to go away to Scarlets with, with all their Welsh contingent back and who are also fighting for a playoff spot on Saturday night this weekend. Uh, they play Glasgow away in, in their final game as well. And, you know, I, I think that essentially that's what he is saying is that what Edinburgh don't want now is to go from being at the top end of Europe in a quarter final, playing at an intensity to the season just kind of. Uh, filtering away into nothing because Edinburgh put in a lot of good work this season. They've had a, a really poor window while their internationalists were away. And, you know, when you take into account, they lose the the chunk of their front five. They lost Darcy Graham. They, lost, they lose Blair Kinghorn. John Barclay, Hamish Watson weren't really fit during that window either. So for him, I think the key is emphasising the importance of the the, the next three or four weeks with their finish to the season because he want them to finish strong and get themselves in another knockout stage of the Guinness Pro 14 so that they can take their learnings from Europe and put it in there and hopefully pick up some wins. Well, let's move to the Warriors, Glasgow Warriors. I mean, they're top of their conference, but they were gubbed by Saracens. How much did that surprise you? You know what? It, it didn't surprise me all that much. What surprised me was the way that Glasgow got out the blocks and they they scored you know within seventy seconds of of kickoff yeah. and from there I, th- I thought it was I thought it was such a confident start that they were they were it was a brilliant first phase attack but from there I just saw the some really good stuff from Glasgow but also some stuff that you just can't afford to do when you're playing against a side built like Saracens are whereby they suffocate to you they take the territory and possession away from you. They take control of the game. And 
they they execute and they were clinical and there was a there was a they hit a purple patch for 20 minutes in the in the middle of that first half whereby they scored three times every time uh, Glasgow kicked off Stuart Hogg would have been disappointed his first game back and he put three of his kickoffs out in the full and that dropped below the standards that he would set himself but there were a number of other errors in there that compounded error and that's what you can't afford to do to stay in the fight against Saracens and Sure, James will have experienced that with Quinns and understand that. And as as the game went on, the Saracens' power game came into play. And when you're looking at guys like Will Skelton, Billy Vunapola, Jackson Ray, Maru Itoje, um, and then the, the pace in behind Lozowski kicked almost everything. Uh, Liam Williams obviously slotted in at fullback with, with Owen Farrell not at 10 and Alex Good slotting in there. And Alex Good just is such a seasoned campaigner. He just ran the show, looked so comfortable. And yes, he had a good stock of ball, but my goodness, when, when they hit their straps, they are very, very difficult to stop. And for me, I, I left Allianz Park and commentated on it thinking they're the team to beat. I think they probably are. Rory, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for speaking to us once again. Thanks, fellas. Have a good one. Rory Lawson, former Edinburgh and Scotland scrum half. James, um, not only the uh, Champions Cup, Challenge Cup often, uh, well, it used to be derided. I think it, I think the standards got better. I think the, the clubs are taking it more seriously now. Do you, does that accord yeah. with what you feel? Certainly from a Quinn's perspective, we've taken it very seriously. It's mm-hmm. been, um, you know, it's a chance to win silverware. It's a way to winning it. You obviously get into the Champions Cup for next year. There's no doubt all the teams in it want to be, want to be playing in the in the top top competition, but it's a chance to win European silverware and there's some great teams in it this year. Well, a narrow win of just a missed conversion was the difference between you and uh, Worcester. Worcester have got a talented backline, haven't they? Yeah, they do. And they're, um, you know, they're, when you give them time and space, and we did a couple of times, they can they can break you apart. And look, it wasn't it wasn't the prettiest of games, but you've got to find a way to win sometimes. And, and I think that's where we... We've improved, I guess, in the last couple of, since the last couple of years. We've found a way to win those games where not everything's going our way, and it's not uh, it's not going according to plan. And we we did that, and we had uh, we got to the result. We you know it's knockout rugby, so a win that all that mattered. And we're on a semi final with Clermont uh, in a few weeks' time. I want to ask you about Chris Robshaw. Now, I thought that Chris for England, you know, was given short shrift. He was asked to play in a position that wasn't his. He did as well as he can. He did on in England's. 22-game unbeaten run, you know, no one really yeah. criticised him. Then he got loads of opprobrium when they started losing. Said he couldn't be there, went back, proved himself as a sixth, got in, got injured. Now, I know you'll have a positive view on him, but his performances since he came back from injury have been, they've been better than good, mm. given the amount of time he's had off. How well is he playing at the moment? Oh, I think he's fantastic. He's been he's been you know out and out our best player for the last few weeks. You know he's that sort of glue I was talking about earlier that keeps us together. His his work rate's exceptional. I think he's made over twenty tackles in a, in the last four games. Doesn't hasn't missed one. You know he he scraps and fights for everything. And you know I, I think from an England point of view, he has to be on that plane to Japan in some way, shape, or yeah. form. Well, I think they'd be crazy not to take him. Just from you know, his ability around the squad, he can play six, seven, you know, come off the bench and cover a couple of positions, which is what you need at a, at a world cup. And, yeah. and I think he's playing some great rugby. So it's, um, yeah, look, 
while he didn't get a chance in the Six Nations, it, it was a, it was certainly uh, from a selfish point of view, it was a great thing to have him playing for Quinns yeah. in a period where traditionally with the clubs we lose a lot of players uh, and struggle through the Six Nations. We, um, I guess, we had one of our better sort of Six Nations periods, thanks to you know having guys like himself, Danny, Joe Marler, Mike Brown, all all available for selection, which uh, was certainly has helped. Claremont, to uh, they are usually a difficult task. They've been doing reasonably well in the. Uh top 14, big team as well. How will, how will you look to break them down? Yeah, look, after watching that game, that was a bit of a crazy game yesterday. <laughs> it was like 90-something points scored. 99 points. Yeah. So look, I think you've got to go and you've got to take it to them. You can't sort of allow them to get their tails up. They're, they're a big side. They've got some amazing, freakishly talented players that can do things that you're you, you know, you, you don't see that often on a rugby field. So you've got to take the take the fight to them. Um, I think, you know, if you look at the Northampton game yesterday, they struggled with their set piece a little bit and allowed them a platform to get into the game and then launched their big, you know, back row runners, their big back line runners that, that caused a lot of damage for Northampton. And then they just ultimately had too far to chase down. Uh, they did a pretty good job of it. But, you know, the Northampton show that they, they do concede points. I think Northampton scored 40-odd points again in, in all games this year, although they didn't get, haven't had a chance to beat them. So, look, it, it's going to be a huge challenge, a great place to play rugby. And, you know, we're, we're certainly looking forward to it after these two, couple of premiership matches. Well, let's sort of go on to the uh, premiership. You're well in the hunt for a playoff place in fourth Gloucester. They're just a point in front of you on 50-49. And then you've got a gap to Saints. That's, uh, it's eight points now, five games to go. Uh, you'll be reasonably confident about, uh, I think, about qualifying. The difference for me this year, and this goes back, before you were even there, it goes like a decade for Quinns. Quinns are tackling this year. <laughs> I mean, Gusted come in as the head coach, Paul Gusted. Um, he was a defensive coach specialist. Has he been working? What, what, what sort of things has he been doing to improve the defence? Well, I think a lot of defence is about doing things, you know, I know it sounds very simple, but everyone's got to be on the same page. You know, if you're really clear with how you're defending, what your key principles are of defence, then it makes it much easier to everyone to get to get on the same page. And then you've got some clear guidelines of what you're meant to do. Um, and so that, you know, obviously Guzzy coming in being, a def- as you said, a defence coach, he's, you know, we've had a lot of focus, particularly in the preseason on our defence. And a lot of it does come down to attitude as well. It's about yeah. wanting to put your head where it hurts and, you know, get your body in front of someone where it might not not be there previously. So that's... It's been a huge part of us because we always knew, I guess, for Quinns, even when I first turned up, you know, four, four or so years ago that, you know, we could score points, you know, and sometimes the game plan was let's just score more points than they do. And so that... That doesn't always work. No, it doesn't. But I think the fact that we've, you know, we've ground out some wins this year that previously uh, hadn't. And I think the other thing is that, you know, in games that we've lost, I think there's been only one game this year that we haven't picked up a, a either a losing bonus point or a four try bonus point, which has yeah. probably put us in a in the position allowed us to be in the position we are, and that's you know we want to be a team that's very hard to break down. What do you think the realistic games are for Quinn's next couple of years? Well, we want to win silverware. I think Guzzy said that literally the first meeting we had. Uh, he came back from you know the the England tour to South Africa. Plane got in at five a.m. He turned up to training at eight a.m. I think. And that was his first thing he said to us, we're here to win, we're here to win trophies, we want to win the premiership, we want to win the Challenge Cup because that's what we could win. And, you know, we want to we want to be the top team in, in the UK or in, in England and then the top team in Europe. And um, 
we've got to give ourselves an opportunity to do that this year. We've got five games to go on the Premiership, two crucial games coming up against Sale Friday night, then Northampton next week. And you know, yeah, as you can, as you know, they're, they're the two teams that are just behind us. So. What's it like playing at Sale? Because, I mean, they always have their games on Friday night because of the football around yeah. there and so on. Quite often, uh, you don't see the biggest crowds there. Yeah. Are they able to generate an atmosphere? What's it like there? They do a little bit. I think it's certainly, um, you know, it's one of the different venues that you go, obviously playing in a football heartland. It makes it probably a little bit more difficult for them, but they've always had a very good, every time we've played there, they've always had an incredible home record. Um, I think this year they've obviously worked a little bit, you know, they've got they've done some good recruiting and they've got a team that, you know, they, they attack teams away and they've had some big wins and they're in, you know, they've they've gone on a decent run. They're in the semifinals now, the Challenge Cup as well. So they're they're a tough team to break down. Big forward, big, you know, big gnarly forward pack that wanna wanna get stuck in. So it's gonna be a big challenge for us Friday night up there. Well of course Leicester are the talk at the moment. Um the battle at the bottom, bottom four clubs. I was looking at this, the five games for each of them. The only advantage I can see for Leicester is that they've got three home games. But there's no you know, side that's got a really difficult one and someone an easy one. It's mixed for all of yeah. them. What I can't, I mean, Mike Ford comes as senior coach this weekend. Obviously, his son's there. One of my Telegraph colleagues said that he understood the Leicester squad weren't aware of the appointment until Sunday, despite him starting work on Monday. Now, if that's true, as a player, wouldn't you want to know as early as possible? Yeah, I mean, it depends how early it was it was done, but yeah, it seems it seems a little bit strange. You know, obviously they need to look like they're doing. You know, they they're a very proud rugby club, and you know, I've only been here for four years, but that's something that has been made very evident. You know, from when you play up there, from how people talk about Leicester, very proud rugby city, and um, you know, they don't like being down the bottom, and they need to look like they're making some change, and you know, they're hoping that they can, you know, I guess get away from the slide that they've been in. They've had a week off with no Europe game, so you probably would have assumed they would have announced or done the deal before. James, I mean, you, you've been in, in teams with lots of star mm. players, so, so have I, mm. but it can go wrong mm. um, and you can struggle. And everyone says, well, you look on paper, all these great players, yeah. and yet it doesn't happen. Yeah. Is there anything you can do you know, when you're in charge to try and turn this round? Look, it is difficult. I think it's it's about... Everyone finding a common goal and a f common process that you can get to, and then you work from there quite small. It's obviously, you play professional sport, you're a competitive person, you want to win. You know, that's like the, that's the basic thing to say, oh, we want to go out and win. Okay, well, that so does everyone else. Everyone at the start of the year wants to win trophies. But it's about, I think, the process of getting to that point and, you know, making sure that, you know, as little things like the way you handle meetings, the way you go about, the way to deliver messages, you know, you try and stop little conversations happening, make it very honest and open, I think helps as well because, you know, locker room, you know, water cooler talk, as you call it, can can derail a team because you've got guys that aren't playing when, particularly when you're not winning, guys that aren't in the squad that are saying they should be playing, you know, he's only playing because he plays for England, he shouldn't be playing because he plays for... Because another difference is with, with uh, fully professional, you know, in the amateur days, you met in the evening, yeah. 15 minutes before, yeah. you know, you had your supper afterwards... Now you've got extended periods together when, you know, when they're down that you sort of not necessarily you get bored, but everyone chats because of this, you, you, you're training for longer, yeah. together for longer. So that sort of potential yeah, exactly. is and there, the isn't it? The squad sizes are much bigger over here as well. You know, we've got a, Queens have got a squad of like 55, 60 players. So you can only pick 23 yeah. 
that's including academy. You can only pick 23 of a, on a weekend, and so there's going to be a, a, a large portion of your squad disappointed that they're mm-hmm. not playing, and it's about how you manage those guys, and that's one of the difficulties definitely here in the UK with the bigger squad sizes compared to back home in Australia where it's a much smaller base. You know, you don't have as many players missing out, so it's it's about managing that side of it, and that's the difficulty of not only the team but obviously the, the director of rugby or the head coach and, and how they – try and get the best out of everyone. Question, Gregory Mason, uh, he has asked, he said, uh, a lot has been made of Leicester's demise this season. They're not dead yet, but uh, he asks, could Wasp be in the same position next season if you look at the players they've lost over the past two or three seasons and will lose after this one, especially in the backload of guile and pace to replace Elliot Daly, uh, LaRue and so on. Big names, good players, very, very good players. What's your uh, feeling when you look at the remainder of the squad? Do you think they'll need to augment that with with equal quality replacements or will they have enough internally, do you think? Oh, it's a little bit. I think they're, br- they're bringing in guys like Malachi Fekatoa, who's obviously... Uh, not bad. You know, he's not bad. <laughs> he's not a bad replacement. He's a good... So, you know, they're not losing... They're obviously losing guys like Elliot, who's, who's been a junior at the club and come through. He's obviously... Probably for the fans a bit disappointing because he's, um, you know, you like to keep home of your homegrown players, but he's seen that he wanted to to move on. So look, it's you won't know until next year. You know, sometimes it's 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 good to have a change for both the player and the club to get away and do something different. He probably felt that way, and also maybe the club can either a young guy he stopped the young guy coming through and it might give a chance an opportunity to someone else or you know Malachi Fekatoa might be a, you know the signing of the year for them and he might carve up the premiership and be the player of the year and they might make the finals next year so you never know now I've got you here I'll take advantage of that fact and talk about Australia now Australia have been having a hard time recently Czech has been getting a lot of stick I'm waiting for him to spontaneously combust because he ne- <laughs> nearly gets there every time doesn't he but the one thing I've always said about Australia is whatever form they seem to be in pre- pre-World Cup, they're a very good World Cup side. Yeah. Very rarely have they perf- performed badly in World Cups. Can they do it again? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I, look, I think we, last year was a, a tough year for, for, on all counts, provincially. So our Super Rugby teams were, were very poor. The Wallabies obviously didn't perform well. We didn't, you know, we had a poor end of season tour where we lost some big games and, I think so far it's looking much better. The Super Rugby teams are all playing. I, I personally think they're all playing a lot better. You know, there's there's some teams that are definitely going to push the the good sides in Super Rugby this year. And as you said, it's we've got this ability to get up for World Cups. And I think you know Scott Johnson's just come back from from Scotland, and he even said in his first press conference, he said we've got a good good a chance as any other team in the world to win the World Cup. And I I think Aussies believe that. You know, it's a big thing for us. It's a big it's a big carrot. It's the biggest carrot for all rugby players. It you know it puts rugby on the front pages for for you know six to eight months, uh, six to eight weeks of the year, where you know when competing with other sports. So it's a, it is a huge event for for the Wallabies, and you know hopefully they can if they continue the path they're on, they should hopefully get the job done. Well, I mean they nearly got rid of Checker, you know, around the New Year. If you're a player and there's this speculation about Willie Warnty go, does that affect the? Squad emotionally or the psyche of the squad? Oh, it's a it's a difficult one because it it can't those sort of things can quite snowball because when one person starts talking about it, it sort of grows and grows and grows. You either just want them to make a decision or not, 
It doesn't matter whether the, the ambiguity is where it kills people. If they just say, this is the coach, he's the coach, 100%, he's coaching to the World Cup, then we'll make another decision. Then everyone goes, okay, well, the, even if there's rumours going around, well, they've, you've come out and said it, and if, you know, the man of your word or a company of your word, that's what's going to happen. Uh, it's when they go, oh, we'll wait and see, we'll wait and see, we'll wait and see. It's almost like they're waiting for a better option. And as you know, the rugby world's a, not a big one. And, you know, yeah. a lot of people start Talk. talking. Yes. You know, it just all it takes is one person to text someone, I hear this. And then all of a sudden, half the, half the rugby. And also, if, if, you, if, you, if it becomes known that it's dependent on the next few results, you don't like him. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think exactly. people don't try, but no. I mean, it, it, it just adds it's not to the ideal. stress. Yeah. It adds to the stress, you yeah. know, and already, particularly in test match rugby, you know, it's people, that's what you go out to win. Like yeah. It's it's a huge game. It's a test and, you know, it's, um, you don't probably need that sort of extra stress. Oh, if we don't win today, the coach is going to lose his job. Yeah, it becomes a little bit difficult. Let's turn to the uh, women's game because the Terrell, uh, 15 Premiership was back on this weekend. I was at the stoop to witness, well, it was a very one-sided game. I, having said that, it was a very good game as well. It was very entertaining. It was a record crowd. I made it known that I have always supported women's rugby. I wrote a column in the Telegraph this week about it and why I thought that the men's game, actually the future of the men's game, was best served by putting the time, the effort, the investment into the girls' and women's game. Uh, it's too long and convoluted to go into now. Suffice to say, the response was mixed, and I was very disappointed in some of the responses, which were basically Neanderthal, quite frankly. And if you are one of those people who listens to the podcast and left a negative one, you're a halfwit, all I can say. Anyway, why don't we speak to someone who's not a halfwit? She is Maggie Alfonsi. She's a former World Cup winner. She is on the line now. Hello, Maggie. Hi, Brian. And first, Brian, I'd like to say thank you so much for your support because people like you that, that sort of champion our game. I don't do policy. that because it's politically correct. That mm. I, I just, way, way back in 91, I just thought, I want to play rugby. I like rugby. I can help. Mm. Let's play rugby. It wasn't anything to do with the fact that, and this is before, you know, you, you had to be, uh, you know, part of the women's cause. And, yeah. You know, it's it. Well, anyway, let's move on. Quinn's of a record performance. They hammered Gloucester heartbreak. And I don't think Gloucester played anywhere near like what they can, but uh, a lot of that was to do with the fact that Quinns played actually very well. A lot of their tries were good, had three or four offloads in the tackle. They got on the front foot. They were very certain, quick wings, good clarity with the way and where and when they wanted to play. But obviously, your side Saracens are top dogs. If it comes down to... A fight between the two. Who's your money on, and why? Well, I'm a former Saracens player, so I've got to support Saracens all the way. But I, what's great um, about the final four teams is that it, it, it potentially is going to be a real close semi-final slash final. Like Saracens said, Harley... wasps and, and Quinns, they've got left for lining. That's correct. Yeah, I mean Saracens have beaten Wasps twice in the season. Um, you know, again, when it comes to semi-final, anything can happen. Saracens um, have got a few injuries, so they've lost. Uh, Marley Packer, who's a, who's a key uh, forward for Saracens and England. Uh, Vicky Fleetwood as well, who is normally a hooker, but also plays back row. She's another player who's out. Uh, and Bryony Cleal, another uh, good player. So there's some key players out for Saracens, but Saracens as a whole, they've got a really good structure with some really good young players coming through and, and some obviously very senior, experienced players. They've lost quite a lot but, of power um, there, haven't you? They're, I mean, they, they, they're, they're carriers for, uh, for Saracens. They're, they're gain line, they're momentum players. 
Yeah, I think I think the the benefit of not just Saracens, but I guess you look at the other teams as well. Um, you've got some real big serious carriers, but you've got some smart players in that team. So mm-hmm. if I look at Saracens, they've got Zoe Harrison who plays usually fly half, but can also play twelve as well. And she's you know tactical uh, player who knows how to use the you know use the ball and the boot really, and uh, and can really move teams around. So. I think Saracens have a good balance. Um, Wasps have have a really good strong side as well. Um, probably don't have as many England players as Saracens, and I think sometimes you know having international players does make a difference, especially in that, uh, when you get to the uh, the business end of of, um, of the league. But I think it's going to be an interesting game between those two. But the final is a good chance Harlequins will be there. Mm-hmm. You can't count out Loughborough as well, who've a new team on the block and have um, have done really well this season, incredibly well this season, and uh, and could push Harlequins all the way. Well, what about Worcester? They waited the best part of two seasons to win. Won last week, won again. Is that just what confidence of a win can do for you? Yeah, I mean, look, they had a tough uh, game against uh, uh, DMPs at Darlington Molden Park, um, and they're both at the bottom of the league. But I think what's been quite interesting, it's actually seen that there's, there's battle all over the, the, the league, even though the top four was pretty much decided before the final round of the uh, the league. The teams at the teams at the very bottom are still fighting it out, and there's no relegation or promotion this season. So as a result of that, you know there's everything to play for to keep improving. And I think with, with Worcester, they had a, a, an exodus of players leave at the start of the season, and, and other players have gone to other clubs. And I think what's been good about Worcester, they've used this opportunity just to build their squad and players like Lark Davis, who plays for England as well, um, Hooker scored many tries uh, over the Six Nations has been one player's return back to the squad and I think it's definitely lift their performance as well. Well, Maggie, that's a big difference, um, certainly over the last couple of years in the women's game to the men's premiership, wholesale movements of quite a lot of players. Have we seen the last of that now? Is that the restructuring uh, sort of gone on or not? Uh, you know, I, I like to say our oh, players will stay where, they, where, they, where they're going to be at the moment. Um, but next season, you're never quite sure what can happen. Um, you know, there might be an opportunity for, for players to get a starting shirt at another club. You know, you see it in the men's game. For some players, a lot of players do move because, you know, there's a, let's say, a, a more stronger outfit. For example, you know, Harley Quinn's a very good setup over there. Two really good coaches talented athletes uh, who are based there. So some players might leave an, another club where they maybe don't feel they get in that same level of um, environment and, and move to another club like Harlequins because they feel they might get that. And I guess that's the key thing about the, the Tyrrells Premier 15s. It's about trying to develop 10 amazing clubs that all have very good mm. structures. So players don't necessarily want to move around. Instead, if they move around, it's because of other things rather than um, maybe they're not going to get the same level of, I guess, challenge or pressure um, or success, you know, at that club. So... Mm. Well, I mean that 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 is part of the challenge, isn't it? Because you you've basically you've you've almost got two leagues. You know the the, the top four, arguably Gloucester as well, are probably quite a bit better than certainly the bottom three or four. And and you don't want big mismatches. No, you don't. And look, you went to obviously the game changer on the weekend, and, and again a brilliant crowd. But I guess the the unfortunate thing is it was very much a one-sided game. And in in women's game, in the men's game, in any sport, I'd say, I, I, no one wants to see a one-sided match. And at the same time, you don't want to punish the teams who are, who are doing incredibly well to, to bring through talent and, and, and develop their squad. It's about finding ways, um, I guess, to try and bring well, in, reduce the gap between the bottom of the of the league and the top end of the league. And, and I think it, we have seen that because at the start of the Tyrrells Premier 15s, I'd probably say there was probably two teams that were, were, were stand out um, at the time and it would likely be your Saracens 
um, and, and your harlequins really or your saracens or your wasps and now there are a few more and I do think you know when the season starts again next year you'll have a few more teams sort of push um, to, to at least be in the top six so it, it just takes time really and, and it looks frustrating because you see one-sided results but I do think with the more money we invest into the, the league and the increase in developing that that talent pool I think you'll start to see closer games. What have you got to say to, I mean, you, you may or may not have read the comments to my column today. I actually mm. don't read them because yeah, no, no. <laughs> you know, they just annoy you. Um, yeah. But they, were, they, they, they weren't all negative, but they were the usual ones, of, you know, that were basically, you know, almost dismissive of, uh, mm. of this. What, what do you say to the, the naysayers? Well, first, look, Brian, I obviously one of the columnists for Telegraph, and uh, every time you know you put, I put an article out. Uh, unfortunately, I always get a few negative comments from people who think you know a woman shouldn't know the game, women shouldn't be involved in the game. Even when I do punditry on TV, unfortunately, you still get those those individuals who, who like to make their voices be heard. And the the thing is, when it comes to you know our sport, I always say to people, it's about growing our game. You know, it's 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 not even about a gender thing. It's it's not really about you know having almost the, the negativity within our sport is actually how do we make rugby the best sport in the United Kingdom? How do we get more people to get into our sport? Uh, and unfortunately, some people out there who, who are quite happy with keeping it, you know, a certain way uh, and don't want change and, and don't think people are, are, should be accepted in our sport. And I think that's what frustrates me. Final question. To me, the absolute key, and when this happens, women's rugby growth will explode, is representation at each year level, not th- under 13, 15, 18, mm-hmm. each year level with teams that are in reasonable distance. So at the moment, you've got to go into one of those brackets, so you might be underage, and you've also got to probably travel quite a long way. Yeah. When we crack that, then the growth will be huge to me, and that will be great for women's rugby, great for the game all round. How do you think you go about that? Because I know it's not easy. Look, it's saying like um, women's football, at one stage, they, they had bigger gaps between age groups. Um, and because they've, now the sport is visible and there's more role models, you've got more young girls uh, playing it. And as a result of that, they've got more age group football. And so I think we need to get to that. The only way we're going to get to that is making the sport more visible, making sure people see the sport as being safe, and actually ensuring they've got initiatives through the RFU and so on to... to go out and get these young ladies into the sport. We are always going to be competing, though, against other sports. So women's football is, is on a high at the moment. So we need to find a way of working with other sports to, to grow our game. Maggie, great to speak to you as always. Thank you, Brian. Take care. James, I could see you nodding uh, throughout that. I mean, Quinn's is a relatively new initiative in terms of a franchise, mm-hmm. and it was there before. Gary Street is there. The, the frightening Karen Finley is there as well. What's your view of... Of, of women's rugby in general and, and of the Quinn setup. Oh look, I, I think that the the growth has been been great the last couple of years, particularly the the investment I guess Quinn's has put in it, and I think it's great to see the other clubs putting. You know, I think there's talk that Exeter are possibly looking to put a women's team in. I think the more Premiership clubs that can have, I guess, a corresponding women's game, I think is good for it. For as you the things you were talking about, growing the game and and, and I guess the visibility of what's going on uh, with women's rugby, and I think it's the standard and the accessibility of it is great. And as, as you said, I think at a club level, that's where it needs to start. Were you surprised at the standard of the Queens ladies? Coming from Australia where, I guess, seven, women's sevens rugby yes. has been obviously huge for us. And, you know, they they had a very 
poignant policy to go out and look for the best athletes to go look you can play an olympic sport let's try and find the touch players the netballers the you know any any athletes that you want to win yeah. an olympic and they they went out and they did that and you can see the standard so I always knew that there was obviously the, the high standard there, but I think Quinns have certainly, whether they've recruited well or they've just had a, a good catchment area to, to have a lot of, of the ladies. So tell you what, what impressed me, although, as I said, that you know, that, um, Gloucester didn't play as well as, as I know they can, what I was quite impressed with was things like the accuracy at the breakdown, support players in quick enough, good body angles, different varieties of clearing, some pickups, yeah. some rolls, et cetera, but effective. Although it looks like a complete runaround, 62-0, yeah. they did put together tries which no side would stop because they were, in one, there were four offloads in close proximity. So the, player were, the players were tackled. The set defence worked. The scramble defence worked. As you know, you put an offload away, not a lot you can do about that. No, exactly. And I think that comes obviously down to the coaching they get. They obviously spend a lot of time, you know, the girls are in a around the, the club a, a little bit, a lot more this year than, than they were previously. And I think that's the plan going forward is to try and get as many uh, of the ladies around the club and, you know, training on a more full-time or basis than it is part-time. So I think the, the club need to be, uh, I guess, congratulated on the, the approach they've taken there. OK, well, that's all we've got time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. Thank you to my co-host, James Horwell, and as always, my producer, Abby Patterson. Please subscribe to the podcast, and if you haven't left a review, please do leave one. But for now, it's goodbye. Goodbye.